Amen. As we continue our study through Luke's gospel this morning, we come to the concept of the unbelieving generation. Jesus has just been on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you were with us last week, we walked through that. We looked at his glory. We looked at the comparison of the Transfiguration Mountain and Mount Calvary, and we saw the similarities and, and, the, and the great distinctions between those two. And we need to keep in mind that on the mountain of transfiguration, the very last thing that you hear is the voice of God the Father himself speaking to those few disciples who were there, declaring who Jesus was. This is, notice, we can even go back and look at it in verse 35. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then they come down off of the mountain and it's the next day. And there was a young man, boy, who'd been possessed by a demon. And the father comes running frantically to Jesus. And it's the demon that the disciples couldn't cast out. Notice what he says. He says, teacher, I beg of you, look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him and suddenly he screams and it throws him into a convulsion, foaming at the mouth and difficulty. He, he leaves and mauls him as he leaves. And I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. This is right after the transfiguration. It's right after the, the, the display of the glory of Jesus. It's right after the declaration from heaven that Jesus is the Christ and that he is to be attended to and listened to. And this man's son, his only son, this isn't lost here. It's with intent that it was set up this way. Is suffering at the hands of another We have no indication in the text that this child had necessarily done anything wrong to invite this wickedness into him, but this wickedness had come into him from the outside. There was something outside of himself that had come into him that was causing him to suffer. Friends, this, is, this should not be missed. The tie-togethers that Luke is using here should not be missed. And the disciples could do nothing about it. They could not help this person. Nothing they could do. Now, I don't know all the specifics of everybody's careers here in this room. But I do know that some of you have the kind of work where you sometimes are faced down with the troubles of another. Whether it's physical troubles and you're in the medical profession, or it's legal troubles and you're in the legal profession, or it's emotional and psychological troubles and you're in the counseling field, or your work just generally puts you in the pathway of people who may be Trusting enough to express their deep concerns and troubles to you, hoping that you can help. And I know that some of you who have careers like that, where sometimes you, you have to help people face down difficult times, 
Normally, God in his grace and his kindness gives you the necessary skill sets to help someone. You can show them a pathway and say, hey, listen, you know, if you would consider these few things and if we would adjust this a little bit and maybe you would reconsider that or think differently about this or maybe remove this from your life or maybe add this into your life and maybe make some readjustments in the way your world is set up right now, I think you probably could move toward a good and decent path. And we thank God for moments like that. It's great. I know in my life with what I do, that's a beautiful moment when that happens sitting across the table from somebody and they're in distress and they're struggling and you open up the word and you point them in a general direction of wisdom and they say, hey, I, I've never thought about it like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, with the Lord's help, going to try to do some of those things. And then they come back to you a few months later. Hey, man, things are improving. And, they're, and you say, praise God. But I know in, in my life that there's been a lot of times where I've sat down across the table from someone and they've expressed whatever it is. This, this, is what's, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. This is the struggle that I have. And with all sincerity and humility, I've had to look across the table at them and say, there's nothing I can do to help you. If God doesn't directly intervene in your life, this won't get any better. And it's a really helpless, weird place to be. When people want you to help, they think that you can help and you can do absolutely nothing to help them. And this is where the disciples were. This man had come to the disciples. The disciples, remember the story, they'd been sent out. Just not many chapters ago, Jesus said, I'm going to send you guys out and you're going to have power over demons. You're going to have power over sickness. And they came back and they said, the demons even obey our voice. So people were aware that the disciples were doing some of these things that Jesus was doing. And so this guy, totally sensible, he goes, Jesus isn't here, but these guys are. And they've been doing some of the stuff and they've been with him. Hey, can you help my son? And they tried and they failed. They couldn't help. And so Jesus does something very uncharacteristic in this story. Very uncharacteristic. To this point, his most severe rebukes have been to the religious extremists of his day who inappropriately mar the word of God and the covenant of God to oppress people rather than to set them free. His most severe rebukes have been for them. His other rebukes have been to the demonic directly, rebuking demons to come out of people and overthrowing the darkness that is in the world. With the occasional rebuke for the lack of faith that his disciples might have, but usually that with a bit of sensitivity. Oh, you have little faith or why do you have such small faith or, you know, these kinds of things. And he encourages them to trust God more. There's usually a, a gracious mercifulness underneath the backside of those rebukes. This is very uncharacteristic what Jesus does here. Jesus looks at everyone the demoniac, the demon, the disciples, the crowd, the father, everyone. And he rebukes them all. Notice what it says. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation. 
How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Now, I, I, I want to say we, many of us have probably heard this story before. We've seen these words. We've read through this and we kind of blow by it. But I, I want us to settle in on how potent and unnerving what Jesus just said is. He looks out an entire mass of people, which includes all 12 disciples. Three of whom just saw him glorified on the top of the mountain. And heard him having a conversation with the spiritualized Moses and Elijah about his future death, resurrection and ascension after the cross. All right, this, this is, they're included in this crowd. And he looks over this entire mass of people and he calls them two things. One, he calls them unbelieving. He doesn't say you lack faith. He doesn't say you have little faith. He doesn't say you have a struggling faith. He calls them unbelieving. That means without faith. Faithless. In the Old Testament, it's the language that God uses of Israel when he calls Israel an adulterous bride. You were faithless. You went wandering after other gods. It's the same language, same concept. That's what Jesus just called everyone in the crowd, including his disciples. I don't know about you, but where I'm from, those are fighting words. I just spent I don't know how long going from village to village without enough supplies because you told me not to take stuff with me. And we were casting out demons. We were healing sick people. And you weren't even around. And I just saw your glory on the mountaintop. And you want to say that I'm faithless? I'm in my spiritual imagination pretending what Peter might have said if he weren't overwhelmed at the offense at what he just heard. I guarantee you that conversation was going on in someone's mind. What did you just call me? But Jesus didn't stop there. Not only did he call them unbelieving without faith at all, faithless, he then calls them a perverted generation. Now, in our English terms, that word has come to be morphed into something that it doesn't exactly mean here. What that means in this context is crooked or twisted. It's, this, it's the concept of taking that which is good and altering it just enough to where it still has the appearance of what made it good, but it's actually being used exclusively for that which is evil. And Jesus just called everyone in the crowd, including his disciples, part of a crooked Twist it. You take what's good and make it evil generation. Man. <laughs> and then he asks a couple of questions. This is the thing I like about Jesus. His really hardcore sermons are super short. It'd be like if me or one of the elders got up here on Sunday morning 
and was like, you're all rebellious ragamuffins who are going straight to Hades. And then just walk, you know, like, like that's what Jesus does. When he preaches like these aggressive, like just, it's super short. So he makes this really aggressive statement. You are a faithless, twisted, crooked generation. Let me ask you a couple of questions. First question he asks. How long will I be with you? This is an incarnational question. Some of the disciples just heard the conversation he was having with the spiritualized Moses and Elijah about his departure from Jerusalem, meaning his departure from the world. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised and he will ascend. And incarnationally, he will not be here anymore. This is like a real logistics question. How much longer am I going to be here? I'm giving you a job to do in the kingdom. I'm going to be sending my Holy Spirit in my place. You will be the incarnational embodiment of the gospel. I won't be that anymore. I will be gone. How long am I going to be here? In other words, when are you guys going to get on task and do the stuff that you're supposed to do? Do I have to stand over you and hover and be a mother hen? It's very similar to conversations that those of you with uh, preteen and teenage children have on a regular basis about the cleanliness of rooms and gym bags, I'm sure. And then he asked another question and it's, man, it's a painful question. And how long will I put up with you? The language there is the language of endurance. How long am I going to endure you? Friends, there's a lot of bite in this. A lot of bite. Now, what the disciples don't realize is that the answer to the second question and technically the first question is forever. I will be with you forever. And I will endure you forever. But they're not aware of this fully yet. And so the bite of this is severe. It's severe. And then Jesus, the only way that true deity can, shows out. If anybody else had done this, this, is, uh, this would have been um, inappropriate and sinful because of boasting and pride. But when you are the very God of very God, the very light of very light, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who the voice from heaven just spoke the day before on the mountaintop, this is my chosen one, my son. Listen to him who received a full Shekinah glory of God and basically told Moses and Elijah what was up. This guy can look at you and say, bring your son here. And you know what Jesus does? He throws the demon out of the child and gives the boy back to his father whole and healed instantaneously. No struggle, no problem, no issue whatsoever. 
just handles it. And of course, what happens to the people? Let's, let's look at uh, the good doctor Luke and what he says. Verse 43, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. That word for greatness could also be translated majesty. They were all amazed at the majesty of God because this just happened. It's incredible. Jesus doing what only Jesus can do once again. And then I want you to notice something else that takes place here. But while everyone was marveling at what he was doing, everyone's marveling at what he's doing, he turns specifically to his disciples and he says, let these words sink into your ears. Now, remember where we just came from. At least three of these guys were just up on the mountain. They heard the very voice of God say, this is my son, my chosen one, my beloved son, my only son, depending on which gospel you're reading. Listen to him. Listen to him. So the very first thing that happens after that story is told, by the way, it's also the very first thing that is spoken of in Matthew. And it's the very first thing that's spoken of in Mark. All three stories that have the transfiguration story are immediately followed by this story of the disciples' incapacity to throw this demon out and Jesus having to rebuke them and a call for them to attend to the words that Jesus is about to say and to give the end of the story away, their inability to listen and comprehend. Notice what he does. He says, I need you to listen to me. Let these words sink deep into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke gives the shortened version over in Matthew and Mark. You pull it all together. It says, the full version, the Son of Man is going to be given over into the hands of wicked men. He's going to be put to death, and after three days, he will rise again. He gives the full story of the gospel when we bring all the gospels together. The full telling of what it is that's about to take place to him. And it says in every text, some version of, they didn't get it. They were grieved by it. They didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it. And in at least two of the three versions, it includes something like what Luke says here. And they were too afraid to ask. They were too afraid to ask. There are certain things that are even concealed from the disciples. Jesus calls for them to pay close attention. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to come back from the dead. They did not understand this. They were too afraid to ask. And God the Father had just spoken directly to at least three of these men, telling them, pay close attention to what this man is going to say to you. Because he is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. He is my son. And what he says is of the greatest importance. And friends... In the gospel telling, please don't miss this. Every gospel writer who tells the story of the transfiguration, who has this voice from heaven, God the Father making declaration to these men who are on the mountain to give an affirmation of Jesus and to say you need to attend to his words. Every gospel that tells this story, the very next teaching words out of the mouth of Jesus are, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to rise again. 
Friends, this is not without consequence. When God desires for us to pay heed to Jesus, to listen to His voice, to comprehend the fullness of His message, to yield ourselves to His majesty, what is it that is the most important thing that we should attend to out of the mouth of Jesus Christ? His death, burial, and resurrection. It's the very first thing he talks about after God from heaven tells these men, listen to what he has to say. And what does he have to say? He turns and looks at him and says, I'm about to be put to death and I'm going to rise again. And of all the things that the disciples ask about. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Oh, they're not too scared to ask about that. Hey, what does this parable mean? They're not scared to ask about that. What's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They're not scared to ask about that. Of all of the ridiculous, snarky, small things that Christian people, believers of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, who want to, to come after Him and know Him and seek Him and ask questions about Him, of all the things that we have the boldness to ask God about, The thing that they are most fearful to have a conversation with Jesus about is, what do you mean you're going to die and be raised again? They don't want to talk about that. I'm a little too afraid to ask questions about this. I'm a little unnerved right now about everything that's going on, and I just, I don't want to go there. Why? Because a dead, buried, and resurrected Jesus is not on the radar for their understanding of the kingdom. A broken Messiah is not on their radar. No, 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 no. Messiah doesn't die. That's not how this works. Remember even a little bit before. Luke doesn't include the whole story, but we know from the other Gospels. Jesus starts explaining this to them. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And what does he say? We know the story. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how this is going to go down. You're not going to die. And if you do die, we're going to die with you. It's war. You know, he's being. It's real easy to be macho when you're inside the house and nobody's there with a sword. You know, super easy. So Peter's being macho, man. You know, he's a fisherman, not a soldier. Being macho. He's watched too many Rambo movies or something. I don't know. Just got done watching Tombstone. I'm your huckleberry. Anyway, and so and he's just not ready for what Rome is about to do. You know, who's the first one to run away? Peter. Super easy to be macho guy when there's nobody there. And you know what Jesus says to Peter in that conversation? Get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what the kingdom of God's actually about. If I don't do this, then nothing is worth anything. And so now they get to this place. Perfect opportunity for disciples to open their mouths and say, I don't get it. Could you help me understand what it is you mean by this? I just heard the voice of your father on the mountain, God Almighty. Like we just got an experience that like the prophets from the Old Testament got. We heard the direct voice of God and we didn't die. And he told us that we should listen to you and pay attention to everything you have to say. And you just said something that's really weird that we don't get. Would you mind breaking that down for That's not what they do. They let it slide. 
and they're afraid. And friends, I want to contend with you this morning that when we look past the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when we look past the foundational truth that is the gospel, when we look past the foundational truth that is the essence of the kingdom of God, when we look past the foundational truth that allows for the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we look past that truth which allows us adoption, redemption, reconciliation, deliverance, and we could throw all of the other blessings in there that you want, when we look past that thing that has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and the beloved Son, the one that has taken us from the city of man and destruction and ushered us into the city of God and has us seated and feasting at the banquet table of the Most High, when we have our rags and our nakedness removed and is now covered with the righteousness of Jesus, foundationally all of of this is found in his death, burial, and resurrection. And when we look past that for any reason in our lives, we are now participants in the unbelieving, perverted generation. Friends, he didn't call them an unbelieving and perverted generation because they couldn't cast out the demon. He called them an unbelieving and perverted generation because he already knew that they were going to be too afraid to truly attempt to comprehend the foundation of the principle of the kingdom, which was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's the key. That is the kingdom of God. It's not the beginning of the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God. The person and work of Jesus incarnationally on the cross and raised from the dead is the kingdom of God. It is. Friends, it doesn't just get you in. It gets you in. It gets you through. It gets you to the end. It it is the thing. And I know it frustrates some people. If you've ever sat in, a, in a, a, a pastoral counseling session with me, eventually the language of, well, you know, Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And, you know, Philip, what does that got to do with my marriage? Everything. What does that have to do with my wayward kid? Everything. What does that have to do with this jerk of a boss I have at my job? Everything. You have nothing of value in this life apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your marriage is meaningless. Your family is meaningless. Your work is meaningless. Your life is not what it ought to be if it is not a life filtered underneath the blood of Jesus and raised up with Him in newness of life in His resurrection. You are not fulfilling your purpose as an image bearer without this truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, when He calls them an unbelieving and perverse generation, he is saying this to them, not because of their incapacity to throw out a demon, but because their incapacity and unwillingness to ask God the most important question, what do you mean you're going to die and be raised again? And friends, every time in our lives, every time, every time in our lives, 
When we look past the fullness of the work of Jesus to anything else, self-sufficiency, our own knowledge, our own understanding, our own ability, our own capacity, our whatever it may be. When we look, Jesus, I got this one. Don't need that death, burial, and resurrection today. I got this one handled. As soon as we do that, we are now complicit in being an unbelieving and perverted generation. Because now our lives are no different than the pagans. And this is why Jesus was saying this to them. It's like, how much more of this do I have to put up with? The endurance question. How often are you guys going to miss this? It's not about a political kingdom. It's not about some spiritual superpowers. It's not about any of that kind of stuff. It's about this cross that's come for them. It's coming for us. It's about this cross that has been. And friend, this morning, I'm going to ask the the honest question of all of us, of all of us. How many things in my life right now? How many things in your life right now? Am I being a participant in an unbelieving and perverted generation because I am neglecting and negating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the most important aspect of whatever that thing is in my life? Philip, you don't know the struggle and this, this, and this. I don't have to know. What I do know is, is that there's one who's overcome it. Whatever that thing is, whatever that addiction is, whatever that struggle is, whatever that suffering is, whatever that sorrow is, whatever that pain is, whatever that difficult trial may be, there is one who has overcome it. And how has he overcome it? Through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's, that's how he's done it. And so long as we turn our back on the only thing that matters... We will continue to suffer and struggle and fret and worry and be anxious and be fearful and feel defeated and feel empty and feel longing and feel hopeless. Why? Because just like this father begging for somebody to help him, we're turning to every place that we can to try to find help and it's not the right place. You want help with your marriage? You won't help with your job. You won't help with your kids. You won't help with your family. You won't help with anxiety. You won't help with your depression. You you know where you have to go? You have to go to the cross. And you have to pass through the cross into the new life of the resurrection. Will that make all of your circumstances suddenly better? Absolutely not. Sometimes it makes them worse. That doesn't sell. You know what I mean? I like... You can't write a book about that, you know, my absolute worst life now. And then I found Jesus and it got worse. Like you can't like that's not going to hit New York Times number one bestseller. It's remarkably true, but it's not going to land there. You know, sometimes it'll get worse. Circumstances may not improve. Jesus sometimes doesn't make things rosy and happy. Sometimes life in Jesus makes things even harder than what they were. The difference is, is that now the one who can carry you is carrying you. And that you can do what the apostle did 
and look at all of the suffering you're experiencing as pure joy. Why? Because it pales in comparison to the cross and to the resurrection and to the glory that is to come. These guys have been walking around with Jesus for a couple of years, have seen some of the most amazing things you could ever imagine, three of whom have saw him in his exalted glory, which only a handful of people in all of Scripture had ever seen. And they were looking past the most essential part of the message at something else. Friends, it's very easy to do. Please do not sit there smugly. Oh, it's not ever going to happen to me. It happened to Peter. It happened to John. Who got to see this twice, by the way. Twice. You got to see Jesus on Transfiguration Mountain. You got to see Jesus elevated in the Revelation. He missed it. We must humble ourselves before God and beg and plead with the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that we never take our mind's eye off of the fullness of the truth, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this very potent, disturbing, and difficult message that Jesus gave to his disciples and to those in the crowd that day of being an unbelieving and perverted generation. Thank you that the message that he gives after that is a message of the cross. It is the kingdom of God, it is the rule of you, O oh God, in our lives that we have come under the blood of the Lamb, that we have participated in His death, and that He has raised us to walk in His newness of life. Father, forgive us for all of those times that we look past that at our own strength, at our own circumstances, at the strength of others, and feel the need to neglect the truth of the kingdom of God, which is the cross. Father, forgive us when we become complicit participants in being an unbelieving and perverted generation. Father, help us by your grace and for your glory, to be people who constantly keep at the forefront of our lives the only true hope any man, any woman, anywhere has. And that is the buried, crucified, resurrected Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you this time, if you would please,